I'm Anne, co-host of Transparency in Teaching, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, have I got something cool for you to check out behind the mic? Voices of the EPN, an inspiring and engaging podcast brought to you by the Education Podcast Network and hosted by EPN's founder, Christopher J. Nessie. You're going to have a blast. Lots to learn. Check it out. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Mary Peroni Harper, and she has written an inspiring book about her parents, The Sound of Her Voice, My Blind Parents' Story. What a powerful book. Her parents were so determined to be successful in life, and they were. So much to learn. Thanks for listening. And uh, by the way, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and left a review. Could you do that? Say some nice words. Maybe give me five stars. Mm, what do you think? Uh, that'd be so cool. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests, and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Mary Peroni Harper is a happily retired psychotherapist and author of The Sound of Her Voice, My Blind Parents' Story. Her stirring book documents the remarkable lives of her parents from the time they fell in love at the Indiana School for the Blind through their challenges, determination, and successes as blind people. Born in Muncie, Indiana and a graduate of the University of Virginia, Harper earned her master's in social work from the University of Houston. Perhaps as a legacy from helping her parents with everything from reading their mail to them inspecting their clothing for spots, uh, she has always been interested in helping others. She became active in the Fibromyalgia Association of Houston after being diagnosed with fibromyalgia in 1992 and has served in leadership capacities, including newsletter editor of the Fibromyalgia Connection and as president for 15 years. Harper has two adult children and loves being a grandmother. They are part of the legacy her husband, Jeff, left behind when he died after a short battle with cancer in 2012. She lives with a blind rescue cat in Houston, Texas. And for more information, please consult MaryPHarper.com. And I'll have that information in the show notes when we get to it a little bit. Uh, Mary, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hello, everyone. and Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. And uh, you have created this fantastic history of your parents that uh, tells a tale of not only them and the, the times, but also of some of the struggles they had to fight. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, let's start here. You're the youngest child of Mario and Jane Peroni. Both your parents were blind. What inspired you to share their story? You know, there were so many stories about my parents that I'd heard growing up and, um, I just knew that I wanted to preserve those stories for my children and for my grandchildren, since uh, my grandchildren would never get a chance to meet them. Uh, and I just, I thought that these are stories are too good to be lost to time. So I, I just needed to figure out how to tell the stories. And honestly, that was the hardest part. Uh, it's a massive story. I could have written one book about my dad. I could have written a whole book about my mother. I could have written a whole book about their relationship. And then a, a fourth one about family life. Um, so trying to boil all that down into one book was a, a big challenge and took me uh, oh, over 10 years to figure it all out and actually get it all down on paper. But uh, And I don't know how many drafts. I lost count. Maybe six drafts, different drafts. 
Um, but finally, it fell together, and I was able to get it published. That's so awesome because you know, it's so many times uh, I, I'm there. I wish I had had all this equipment I have for my podcast back when my parents were alive because I would have been interviewing them. You know, it's and it's it's so cool that you've taken time to put put the the history of your parents in writing, and if nothing else, just for the reason you just said, which is so that your children get to know who your parents were. And, right. Um, that is awesome. I, could you share what situations were that centered around your parents losing their eyesight? I mean, there's, there's two different stories here that happened. Can you kind of get, get update everybody on that? Uh, sure. Um, Dad was born in 1914 and um, January, and he was born with enlarged eyes. His eyes were puffed because of glaucoma. He was born with glaucoma, which is pretty rare in children. And even more rare, a few months before that, my mother was born in central Indiana, with, also with enlarged eyes. Um, so as very young children, they did not have very good eyesight. And the parents, interesting contrast between the two parents. My mother grew up on a farm with very pragmatic parents. They were told, don't spend a lot of money going around to different doctors and finding looking for a cure because there is no cure. And yes, she will eventually be blind. And my father's parents were immigrants from Italy, uh, very devout Catholics. And my grandmother was absolutely certain she would get a miracle and she would not give up. She took him to so many different doctors everywhere in, in the U.S. as well as in Italy. Um, but mom gradually lost her sight and um, it got dimmer and dimmer when she was in school and more and more frustrating because she couldn't read the print, couldn't see the board at all. Um, so by third grade, she was very frustrated um, in the public school. And then dad um, was even younger. He was um, he had a little bit of sight when he was like three years old. They decided to do um, an operation. My uh, grandmother was convinced that by the doctor, a big town of Indianapolis, that yeah, he could do something to help Mario. And uh, it, my dad never forgot that. He was so angry because he took away what little sight he had. Um, he was left with nothing but able to um, tell the, if the sun was out, but that a little bit of light perception, but that's it. Uh, whereas before the operation, he had, one of his earliest memories was they lived near train tracks. And back then there were a lot of coal cars, especially in the wintertime, there'd be snow on top of the black coal. So he could see the white snow on the black coal. And uh, he remembered that. But then once that operation happened and his eyes were still really hurting because of the operation, uh, couldn't see anything. Um, and there's more in the book. Uh, I won't give it all away because uh, there's some that's pretty dramatic about how um, he lost one of his eyes uh, when he was only four years old. And I, he never told me the story until he was quite elderly. He was like 90, 91 when he told me. And I, I had not heard that story before. And I was about how his eye burst one night. And I'm like, oh, my God, Dad. I cannot imagine being four years old and going through that. So I'm sure that's why it was so traumatic. He didn't want to talk about it until he was much older. I was surprised that he would when he told me about it. Anyway, um, so yes, uh, Daz was more um, abrupt and Mom's was more of a gradual decline, although she wasn't able to see well. And if you saw early pictures of her, you'd tell immediately there's something wrong with her eyes. Um and so it had to have been incredibly difficult for both sets of parents. And how do you raise a blind child? What does that mean back then? Um, usually it means that um, 
There's not much that a boy could do to support himself. Uh, a girl, eh, she can stay home. Yeah, she didn't have to do anything. Mom or dad will take care of her. But a boy, what are you going to do with them? Uh, you know, you, you role models. You see poor blind people out begging, selling pencils, selling candy at the courthouse. Uh, there was just not, not much that um, was available. Uh, later on in, in the book, I talk about when they went to the Indiana School for the Blind, they did ha- try to teach them some skills, the boys anyway. Uh, the boys got training in how to make brooms, uh, how to cane chairs, um, how to tune a piano, play music, if you were so cl- inclined to play music. But, and my dad was excellent at uh, music, but he said, I couldn't play well enough to suit me. And how would I earn any money with that? Playing in a bar, and he didn't want to have a lifetime of just playing in a bar while people got drunk. Um, so, uh, I, I hate to tell you about all this, this story. If you, I don't want to screw you up, but um, so stop me if you want, but because I tend to go on. Uh, but with, with the story of how um, my, they fell in love. And my mother absolutely refused to marry him until he could prove that he could earn a living. And that's how all this ties together, because he wasn't learning a skill at the School for the Blind uh, to be able to support himself, much less a family. Um, so luckily, his older brother, whom he adored, decided he would go off to law school. My dad decided, by golly, he could go to law school. And my dad had a brain unlike anyone else I've ever known. He could memorize geography. He knew latitudes and longitudes of every major city in the the world. Um, He knew every single state highway and federal highway in the state of Indiana. He knew all the counties, all the um, county seats. He was just amazing. And when he was in law school, of course, he had people reading to him. He had to memorize everything that they said uh, and take notes in Braille. So that had to have been um, quite a feat to be able to sit there and punch out all those dots while you're listening and trying to absorb lost uh, concepts. Oh, so much so. I, I can only, I, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine any of this period, um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, the time frame of it makes it even more difficult difficult there's there's a lot of things today that can help someone who is in the same situation that they didn't have access to just like you were just saying having to type the dots i mean that's that's uh, you know that's <laughs> there's there's any number of uh technology sorts of um things i i'm trying to come yes. up with a better word yes, uh, yes. Um, techniques, yeah. techniques yeah. and uh, and uh, um that are that are useful for helping someone uh, interpret uh um, what they need so that they can be able to listen to or um, be able to, to see the words and such. But, the you know, it's it what an amazing uh, experience they both went through. And before we go any further, one of the things I'd like to get you to do is, you know, in the very beginning of your book, The Sound of Her Voice, My Blind Parent's Story, you share that a good portion of the book is based upon transcripts of interviews and recordings that your parents made. When you mm-hmm. listen to these tapes or read the transcripts, I mean, what struck you the most? I mean, what realization came to you about your parents? Um, how hard they worked and how hard every day was. Every single day they had challenges they had to overcome, whether it was just simply getting dressed and wondering, oh, do I have any spots on my clothes today? And be embarrassed if you did. 
but they couldn't just check themselves in a mirror. So they would need um, one of us kids to tell them, no, you're fine. Or, oh yeah, there's a spot right there. But it was, so everything from mundane, small things that people take for granted to the big stuff, like just getting through the day and my dad having to pay such close attention to where he was. He had a seeing eye dog and uh, people think, oh, the master tells the dog, well, let's go to the office today. No, (laughs) tell the dog where you're going. You just go and you tell the dog forward. No. Dog may get into a routine and certainly remember which way to go, but uh, you don't just tell a dog where you want to go and the dog takes you. You have to be aware. You have to hear everything. You have to concentrate every moment. And if you get sort of lost in thought, you could get lost yourself. And how embarrassing would that be? Um, My dad was very careful not to get lost. He knew every bump in the sidewalk. Uh, Even as a child, he would be able to go from his house, which was near downtown, to his parent store, which was a confectionery, they called it, where they sold homemade ice cream and candies, all kinds of good stuff. So he would like to go down there to visit. And and he would walk by himself as a young child, um, never getting lost. He knew exactly where everything was he would take. And it it was easier back then, he always said, because cars were noisy um, and there were fewer of them. It's not like now where even I was reading about how blind people are saying that electric cars are so quiet they can't be heard. So that's a big um, issue for them. And how do I know when electric car is coming? Because it's just too quiet. Anyway, so um, dad learned to get around um, and and it wasn't a problem for him. Um, but everything, they persisted. Despite everything being a challenge, they still had a really good sense of humor. Dad would laugh. He would tell good stories. Mom would do the same. And um, they were you know, cheerful people. Um, they didn't let them, they didn't go around morose or anything. And uh, was it easy for them? No. Um, and looking back, I, I realized how hard it had must have been, but they took it with such grace. Um, and I was a kid. Um, I was playing. I, they were just my mom and dad. I took <laughs> everything for granted. Yeah, mom did all the laundry. Yeah, mom did all the cooking. So... Don't isn't that what moms do? I mean, nice. Never yes. occurred to me that we were different until I got uh, you know, a little bit older. I can I can only imagine. And we, we're gonna come back to that. So hang on to that thought right there because okay. something that you started talking about that I want to make sure that we kind of finish here. I know that, I do that all the time. I'm uh, sorry. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. What brought your parents together? I mean, can you tell the story how they met? Because that I think that's a, such a cool thing that happens because this the serendipity here is just amazing. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, just uh, yeah. could you talk about how your parents met? Sure. Um, well, they were both in the school for the blind. Dad had um, finally got into school. He was young. He was like eight when he um, finally was able to enroll in that school. That's uh, youngest they take them. Uh, and my mom was 10, I believe. She was a little bit older because she had tried um, hard to be in public school. Anyway, so she she uh, arrives in the third grade, learns Braille quickly, and gets promoted up to fourth grade. That um, following after Christmas, I guess it was. Uh, and my back then, the school was very, very conservative um, as far as the sexes go. Absolutely, they were separated. The boys never could talk to the girls, and they had couldn't walk with each other. They couldn't talk with each other. They couldn't play together. They had separate playgrounds. They had separate dining rooms. They absolutely did not want the sexes to mingle until we got to high school. And then they had 
three or four dances a year, which were very highly controlled and um, watched uh, so that uh, make sure these kids didn't get any ideas. Well, first day my mom walks into school and she sits down and she's a little nervous because she's not been around boys that much. She, she had two sisters and all of her friends on the farm were girls. Um, and she didn't like the boys that were noisy and loud. And they, um, as she put it, they smelled bad. But uh, across the room from her, the aisle from her was a boy named Mario Peroni. And he listened right away when he heard her voice and when she would um, answer questions from the teacher. Um, and then one day, uh, the assignment was to recite a poem. So she had to recite a poem and uh, she stood up and she barely was able to get it out. And then she sat back down really quickly and but dad was smitten. He, as she said the words, he memorized it in his head. And he said later that he often replayed those words and, and her voice over and over in his head whenever he got lonely, he, you know, like when he was in law school or whenever they were apart. Um, I thought, oh, how romantic a story is that? <laughs> that's so cool. That's, I appreciate yeah. you telling that story because that's, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to happen for them to come together and they come together at that school eventually. And we're going to talk a little bit about the challenges there because you've you mentioned some of it, which is that, you know, kind of, uh, and, and I don't, I'm just going to kind of preview here. I mean, cause there's something I want to ask you before we go there, but the, you know, the, there's a lot of thought about, uh, you know, they're going to be more focused on a vocation than they are an education. I think it's probably a good way to, say it you know the school was interesting because they had a vocational track and they also had a liberal arts track where um they didn't really expect kids to go into college even though both of my parents did um they were the only two in their class to go on to college uh but they did have oh my god dad could do geometry proofs you know and he's completely blind and i had two good eyes in high school and couldn't do a proof to save my life. I had no idea what this was about. Didn't care. But he was like, oh, yeah, well, you just do this. And then you do that angle. And I'm like, how do you know that? So, you know, that that was pretty impressive that, yes, the school did teach them English and how to write and, um, you know, a a very broad uh, education. And um, then when they got into high school, of course, they were so separated, they couldn't be talking. So they came up with some really innovative ways to communicate. Um, and, and that's also in the book about how uh, they used to write notes to either, each other without being caught, but they had to enlist the help of their parents, their mother especially. Um, and because if they had been caught, they would have been read and then they couldn't, could, that gig would be up. And um, So, it, it, yeah, they... they their the institutional kind of biases was against them. And I really have to guess about what their parents must have thought because dad was in love with a Catholic boy, was in love with a Protestant girl. And now it's not such a big deal. But back then, yes, it was. It was a very big deal for Catholics were supposed to marry Catholics and so forth. And um, it, it both sets of parents ended up uh, blessing the marriage. But blind people aren't supposed to get married, period. Uh, much less have children. So, you know, there's all kinds of talk behind their back and to their face. How are you going to support them? How can you do this? How can you make a living as an attorney? Nobody's going to want to hire a blind attorney. And 
And then, well, how you can't possibly have children. What you can't watch them. That wouldn't be safe. Uh, and so, you, you know, against all that, in the same way with cooking, my mother, her own mother, wouldn't let her in the kitchen. No, you might hurt yourself. You can't cook, even though mom had been taught cooking at the school for the blind. Um, they taught the girls things like uh, knitting, crochet, sewing. Some of the, not all the kids at the school for the blind were completely blind. A lot of them had impaired vision, but they weren't as completely blind as my mom was and my dad. Um, so it, it, they had different levels of um, classes for different people, but mom crocheted a baby blanket for me. I still have it. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, people can learn lots of different um, techniques and lots of different things if you just give them a chance. That's so cool. And your, your parents' story is definitely an example of that and to come through the times that they did um, to share that. And, uh, you know, one of the things I got to ask you before we go any go any further because uh we're going to get into some some more about that is you know you have three siblings i mean all all of you were raised by your parents i mean thinking about the era what were some of the challenges that your parents faced in raising their children i mean is they have these children and and then they got to raise them so can you talk a little bit about what those some of those challenges were yeah there's um the biggest overall challenge that was i think driving a lot of my mom's behavior was the fear that child protective services would take us away. Therefore, we had to behave well. We had to be clean. When we went out, we could play in the yard and be dirty and stuff. But we, if we were going anywhere, we had to change clothes and look presentable. She was always careful when we were little to um, wipe our faces off, make sure that we were clean because she was worried that people would see us and say, oh, Mrs. Peroni, she doesn't know that her children are running around really dirty and she can't take care of them. So, you know, that influenced how she raised us for sure. But um, even before that, it's the more uh, pragmatic things. And, and I began to realize it didn't occur to me to think about it. Uh, growing up, but when I was watching my mother change my nephew's diapers, so my sister Anna was 10 years older than I was, so she got married first, had kids first, and I was still living at home, and mom was changing the baby's diaper and and using cloth diapers, uh, not cloth, um, paper diapers, but then uh, I was just watching her and like, yeah, mom's changing the diaper, big deal, and then when I had children, and I realized, oh my gosh, what mom must have gone through because uh, I decided to use cloth diapers back 40 years ago and uh, with the pins. And I asked her, how did you ever do that? Well, she said, I wanted to poke myself and not the baby. So I always had my fingers there between the baby and the diaper and I just guided it in. I said, well, didn't you poke yourself? And she said, oh yeah, I poked myself a lot. But, <laughs> you know, and, and so she not only changed diapers, but she had to clean them and she did not have a diaper service. She she washed them all herself by hand at the beginning. Uh, then she got a, one of those ringer washing machines and had to work real hard to wash those out and wring them and hang them up to dry. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't born then, or <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't a mother back then because I couldn't have. I, I wasn't that strong. I just, just um, the, the focus you know, that you would have to take they, it just is amazing. Yeah. I'm sorry. They, and they did other things to keep us safe. Uh, latches on doors. If we weren't supposed to go in some room, they locked that door. Okay, fine. Can't go in. No big deal. Uh, they had rules. Um, and biggest rule, which has always stayed with me, 
do not leave anything on the floor. Whatever uh, you do, if you're playing with toys, you pick those up because nobody wants to trip over them. Um, that would have, would, you would have been in big trouble if they tripped over a toy you left behind. So it was okay to play with the toys on the floor. And, and then mom would come in the room and I'd say, hey, mom, I'm over here in the corner. Oh, okay. And she'd walk around me. She would know. But uh, it's stuff that you don't think about, um, especially I see my own grandchildren and you know, there's stuff all over the floor. And I'm like, oh, that would not fly at the house I grew up in. So Nice. It's a, um, I can only, oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it, it's a whole nother, you know, it's one thing uh, like, you know, when I was a toddler, I was in a house, my parents were in a house that had a basement. And so um, they had a number of stories about that basement door because I always seemed to know when the door opened or something and be standing right there. And so they were constantly trying to uh, make it impossible for me to go down that. Well, you know, they could see that the door was open or closed and make sure. And I just think about any number of things that become an issue. If, uh, you know, you, the parent can't see, like if you were leaving your stuff everywhere and things like that. Um, Right. What, that's just amazing. Uh, One of the things I want to make sure that we talk about is, um, and going, um, you know, and raising their children and such is that, you know, your parents had a desire to be schooled when they were, when they were children. And, uh, uh, but handicapped children were not really considered educable. They, uh, you know, they had, uh, they faced some other challenges about whether they would be allowed to go to school or, or be able to, um, complete, uh, programs and such like this that would take them, um, wherever they're going to go, um. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. Um, from two different perspectives, from my mother's perspective, uh, because she still had a little bit of vision. And even when she was older, I remember seeing a piece of paper that she actually was able to write, print something with. So he, she knew how to print letters. And it wasn't until she was uh, closer to 10 that she completely lost her sight. But um, she, she talked a lot about... Um, the impact of teachers, uh, the school, there's a, was a small country school and, uh, the teachers there were not taught how to help a blind child or a handicapped child. So one teacher, her very first one, well, I don't know how to teach blind kids. So you just sit in back and you be quiet. I'm like, Oh my God, I can't imagine. Welcome to school, kid. Sam, shut up. You know? Oh, um, so she made no concessions for her, didn't bring her to the front so she could try to see the board, uh, said, here, look at a book, didn't want to teach her how to read. And my mom was just dying to read. Her older sister read stories to her all the time, and she wanted to read for herself. And just, no, I'm not going to teach you. Um, that was a horrible first year. The second year was, uh, I believe, Miss Star. And my mom got the nicest tone of voice when she started talking about Miss Star, even when she was in her 80s, talking about the school and how she remembered Miss Star and how she had helped her. And she was the one that really taught her to read and how grateful she was. And what a difference it makes. It, I'm sure Miss Star had not been taught how to teach a blind child, but she had some common sense and she brought her to the front and she gave her some special attention. And she she learned, she taught, you know, uh, kids can learn if you just give them a chance. Um, and so, but then by the third grade, she had another teacher that wasn't all that helpful and her eyes were getting so much worse that she'd come home every day with headaches and miserable and 
kids would tease her because she couldn't see. And life was miserable. She was the only one like that. She didn't know anybody else who had a handicap like that. And um, when her father heard about the school for the blind in Annapolis, that's she, she got all excited. You mean there's a school for people like me and I can meet other kids. And um, so then she decided she would go off there. But and back then it was a Boarding school. You did not go home on weekends. So if you're eight years old, you're going off to school and say goodbye to your parents. You might see them if you're lucky. If your parents had enough money, you might be able to see them on a weekend or two. But if your parents didn't have any money or you live too far away, you're just going to spend the weekends there. And uh, like my mom did not see her parents until uh, Thanksgiving. Wow. So I just can't imagine being a little kid and going off. And then the structure that they had at the time was governesses. They uh, had these women who were very stern and they wanted to make sure that the kids behaved in the school. And they made sure they uh, knew that they had to take their own baths and dress themselves because they weren't going to do that for them. I think an awful lot of blind kids were coddled like that. They were bathed, even though they were six, seven years old and certainly able to bathe themselves. Um, Yeah. My mom was always very independent, and then she'd complain, your dad just likes being coddled. He wants me to do this and that for him. He can do that himself. I'm like, okay, mom. That's uh, awesome. But uh, yeah, I think it depends because his mother being Italian, you know, the Italian mom is they have to take care of their babies and especially their sons. So that was a cultural kind of thing, I think, for my mom. But back to the story of uh, the school, um, there was no love shown. They were there simply, as my dad put, for custodial care. They made sure the kids were going to school. They made sure the kids got to the dining room or whatever. But they no hugging, no empathy, nothing. So they they had to cope with a, a lot when they were very young. Uh, but they got used to it. They formed strong friendships and learned to have a good time. They went roller skating on weekends. They had a great time roller skating. Awesome. What? Okay. Have a good time. <laughs> That's so incredible because it's, you know, you just think about the, the willingness to do and not be caught up in, well, I can't see or I can't do this right. or I can't. And instead they're the opposite. They're like, I'm going to do. And yeah. I think that's just amazing. I mean, one of the, the things that uh, um, your, your mother's determination, persistence uh, um, shows off because it shows out because she is constantly faced with not being able to do this or do that. And so she does uh-huh. it anyway. I mean, cause you just can talk, you know, tell a story or two about something like that. You know, uh, about mom being told no, no all the time. And then just uh, being willing to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was that strong will. Uh, and it was, it must've just ate at her uh, all the time that she, so after they graduated from college, they went to um, school at Ball State Teachers College and it's now Ball State University. Mom had to drop out after two years because her living arrangements changed and she ended up going back home to the farm and dad continued on. So, uh, finished up his education. And while my mother was waiting for him to finish his education, she had been trained at the school for the blind on how to use a gas stove and how to cook and how to clean and how to do all the stuff that you're supposed to do. But her mother would not let her do it. No, no, no. You can hurt yourself. I no, no, you're blind. You can't do this. No, you can't do that. And, that was just like, you might as well tell my mom 
<laughs> you know, it, 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 that just ignited a, a fever within her to be able to do it. And then once he ended up, did get married for a year, they lived with his parents, my dad's parents, who was the typical Italian cook and did not want my mother in the kitchen there either or to do anything around the house and told her, you can't do laundry, you can't see. So mom could not wait to get out of that house. Finally, dad saved up enough money. They could rent an apartment and she taught herself. She did all that herself. She got real uh, cookbooks. She read them thoroughly. She taught herself how to, to do all that cooking on her own. By then she had an electric stove because she really didn't like gas. Gas sort of pops up and makes a flame. And that was scary to her. So she liked the more controlled electric uh, stoves. But um, she taught herself how to do the laundry, you know, uh, and, and she's very happy uh, in her own apartment. But she's also aware that everybody is watching. People are always judging her. Um, I, uh, my sister actually told me the story of when, um, so Anne was been, I was probably not born yet, but my Anne and my older brother were going on the bus with my mother to the pediatrician's office. And they were all sitting together on the bus seat and people, the women in the back were looking at her and talking about their, and mom could hear everything. They were saying, I don't see how she can do it. How can that blind woman handle these two kids? And where are they going? And why, you know, how, at least they look sort of clean and oh, horrible things they were saying. And my mother could hear it, of course, she's not deaf. Um, she got off the bus, she was furious and, uh, and never forgot um, how, people just are so cruel they think that they're they think they're uh, either deaf or stupid or both so sometimes a, a person would come up to a, my my dad and say hello mr peroni crazy and he would just say oh hi joe how are you doing and he would know people's names he knows people's voices very well there was an article in the south bend tribune when he was at notre dame it was claimed that my dad knew the voices of 150 different men awesome and they all thought that was an amazing uh trick and um, so yeah, he he knows people's voices he didn't know their their faces but he knew their voices and compare voices and names that's so cool, it, but it just the stick to itiveness, just the being able to to not feel sorry for yourself and just do. It yeah. sounds like they have a huge dose of that. I, you know, yeah. one of the things that uh, is really cool, and you've kind of alluded to it already. Your father became a successful attorney and judge, and I cannot imagine all the powers that were against him for doing this. But this is amazing in itself. But can you talk about what he had to deal with? To you know. With to be successful and and by the way i gotta make sure that we say something about i mean he's, he goes to the university of notre dame's law school and graduates from that and i mean so this is not i mean this is a pretty amazing feat i don't you know <laughs> right and he graduated with honors nice, even better nice. yeah um so oh, where to start with all that um love he was <laughs> determined he wanted to marry my mother so badly, he would do anything. So, and he knew that going to law school would be the only way and becoming a lawyer was the only way he could make enough money. You know, and and back then, of course, there were no tape recordings. Uh, uh, they didn't come until the 60s. So he had readers that the state would pay for uh, to come and read to him. But uh, he 
he had a, a, a print typewriter, but both of them learned how to type on print typewriters. Um, mom never cared about a Braille typewriter, but my dad did. He took a lot of notes with his Braille typewriter. But to write, um, I can't imagine writing a paper blind, typing it, and hoping that there's not very many typos on there, right. that it makes sense. I mean, and then reading your notes and then having to type and, and so forth. And how much time that must have taken. Oh, it must have been incredible. And, it, and especially because we know the outcome, which is he graduates with honors from the University mm -hmm. of Notre Dame Law School. And so, wow. And, you know, yep. like you said, uh, just simple mistakes that you might have made in the in the creating the uh, pages to read and stuff like this could have you know, derailed any of that. Uh, right. Or, or, you know, professors, especially back then, they counted neatness and everything had to be perfect. And I, I, I don't know how he did that. I don't know if he, he must have had a reader or somebody take a look at his papers, but all that, again, just takes time. Um, and he was not sure he would make it through the law school, especially his first year. It's got to be totally overwhelming and terrifying for him. The stakes were so high. Either if he flunked out, he would end up sitting back at home doing nothing for his life. And he wanted to be married and he wanted to live the American dream. And um, that was a pretty powerful incentive for him. So something yep, else. when that happened, then things took off for him. Uh, we graduated in July. That uh, Another part is described in the book about how the um, Indiana Bar Association uh, had the uh, a test, you know, the bar examination. Uh, and, and that was in Indianapolis and he had to go down there for that. And he comes in carrying all his stuff to be able to take the test, assuming that someone would read him the questions. And they said, oh no, Mr. Peroni, we've decided that we would do you a favor and we would give you an oral test. And he was like, uh, oh, <laughs> he was uh, very much taken aback. Because as he said, it's one thing to demonstrate your ignorance on paper. It's another when you've got three examiners staring at you and you're trying to formulate an answer to a question. Most definitely. So that was very traumatic for him. I but he passed. That's awesome. And, and I can only imagine that was that was like. But uh, just that's just awesome. And what an incredible tale. Of, I, I mean, what an incredible um focus your parents had and to be able to achieve what they did and, and go on and, and raise kids and, and, uh, and have the careers and have a family and, and do all this cool stuff. I, you know, one of the, one of the things that I have to ask you, I mean, did you ever think about what your life might've been like if your parents had not faced the issue of blindness? You mean, uh, well, I wasn't sure about what you mean by face the issue of blindness. I mean, if they had not been, Challenges. I wouldn't be here. <laughs> if, they, if they were just sitting at home. <laughs> nice. nice. Uh, I hadn't thought about it that way. What I was thinking about was, did you ever wonder what it would be like if you did, if, if your if parents were blind? Or if they could see? If they could see, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I did a little bit. When I was a kid, I used to pray for a miracle. Being a good Catholic girl growing up, you, you know, I used to pray, supposed to pray for stuff. And I, I used to pray for a miracle. And then I got older and realized, man, that's not ever going to happen. And uh, give up on that. But, um, you no, know, you know, they were wonderful parents. And you had typical childhood kinds of stuff at times. And uh, you just grow up. You just start doing your own thing. Gotcha. So, so yeah. 
Did I wish my parents could drive? Oh, you bet I wish my parents could drive. Was I frustrated that um, we couldn't go anywhere when everybody else could go on vacations? And I'm like, yeah, of course I was frustrated. But, um, you know, you you make do with what you got. So that's what I did. We walked a lot. We took buses a lot. And, or we rode um, bicycles all the time. Nice, nice. The, you know, one of the uh, one of the things I have to ask you is, is there some message that you hope readers of your book, um, the book reminding everybody, it's called The Sound of Her Voice, My Blind Parent's Story. Is, sure. there, is there some message that you hope that a reader takes away from the story of your parents? Yeah. The more I do talks about my book, the more I realize that people just need to be educated about blindness. And um, I, I'm hoping that they people will realize that blind people are human beings like everyone else, that you treat them like everyone else. But sometimes you have to remember that there are a little bit of differences. For example, a truly blind person cannot catch your eye. So they don't know that you're approaching. So you have to use your voice to say, hi, this is so-and-so, and I'm so happy to see you today. And then they'll respond, shake your hand or whatever. Uh, another example that I give, it drives me, used to drive me out of my mind. We'd go out to lunch, and my mom and I. My mom had eyes uh, that were looked normal, but they were glass eyes. So a lot of times people would not realize that she's blind. The waitresses would come and hand us two menus. And my mom, of course, wouldn't reach out for her menu. So I would say, oh, we only need one menu. And the woman would sort of look at me funny. And I'm like, yeah. And then she'd come back and she'd say, what would she like? I say, I don't know. Why don't you ask my mother? And then she would say, oh. And she said, what can I get you, honey? And, and then, you know, mom would say what she wanted. But don't uh, treat them like they're not there. They're there. Just talk, please, directly to them. Uh, so it, that would be the most important thing. That And, you know, that still happens. The other, oh, it was a while, a few months ago, there was something on television. I forget the name of the show. It was one of those talent shows. And the kid who won last year was a blind kid who played the piano and sang. He was wonderful. So they were interviewing him a year later. And his mom is up there on the stage with him. And I was waiting for one of them to say, well, Mrs. So-and-so, what does your son think about? And like, they didn't. Only one person sort of slipped and then they caught themselves. You talk directly to the person, please. Don't just assume that they don't understand you. You know, um, that, that's the kind of thing that just drives me nuts. Uh, like the blind person's not there. I can only imagine. That's a, what a, you know, powerful message to say, oh, they're there and they understand and uh, might need some assistance. But other than that, <laughs> don't, don't ignore. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was really hard for my mom. When um, my dad went into politics before I was born and that's how he became a judge because he ran for city court judge and he won. Um, and then later on, they uh, decided they wanted to draft him to become mayor because by then everybody knew who he was because he was famous with a sing eye dog. And there was a lot of um, newspaper articles written about him. Everything he did practically was in the newspaper, wow. but uh Mom really was upset and did not want to be a mayor's wife. She was so happy when he lost because she said, what am I going to do? 
I go and somebody parks me in a chair. I can't, I don't know where the bathroom is. I don't know who to talk to. They're all, there's a cacophony of voices around and I can't pick out I can't start a conversation. Somebody has to come up to me. And so it's just really, really awkward. So to get around that, oh my God, how many times did I take my dad to funeral homes? He knew so many people and when somebody would die, they um, have a viewing. So I would drive him, especially after I got my driver's license, I would take him there and um, walk around with him. He would walk with his hand on my left arm. So I'd give him my left arm and he'd put his hand on, uh, take my elbow basically. And we'd walk around and I'd introduce, I would say, oh, here's so-and-so. Or they'd come up to him and say, oh, hi, Mario. So good to see you. I'm blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, oh, my goodness. We, we saw so many um, people in those kind of situations that, that you know, if you can um, mingle with people, walk around, that that helps a lot. So if you're with someone, if one person's with someone who can walk around, that helps but otherwise, if you're just by yourself sitting at a table, for example, uh, at a lunch uh, with nobody, who do you talk to? How do you catch someone's attention? Which also leads back into my book. It was like, how do blind people fall in love? And when you start thinking about it, you normally you would see someone smile or their way they carry themselves or how they're dressed or whatever attracts you, but it's all visual. So... How does blind people fall in love? Well, by sound, of course. And my dad fell in love with the sound of her voice. That's so awesome. What an incredible book and uh, uh, telling of your parents' stories and uh, and being able to uh, share um, their memory with your family members and everybody else's. And uh, they're, they're an inspiration to all. It's just just something else. I, I can't thank you enough. And it's easy to read book and, uh, and you just want to know more and more about how they do what they did. And, uh, and, uh, thank you for sharing, you know, um, Mary, one of the things that I want to make sure I ask you is if someone wanted to follow up and connect with you and, or learn more, where would you send them? Uh, two ways. My uh, website is, uh, Mary P Harper. Got to put that P in there. Mary P Harper.com or, uh, shoot me an email. I'm always happy to answer emails. And, uh, that is Mary at Mary P Harper.com. Excellent. I'll have that in the show notes so it's easy to find and uh, and so they can uh, connect with you. So good stuff. I so, love that. Yeah. Uh, very cool. And uh, um, last two questions I have for you, and they're just questions I like to ask my guests. And the first one is, how do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? <laughs> I think I inherited some persistence from my parents. Uh, my parents are one of those people that never gave up, ever. Not once. Um, so, I mean, they could fight their battles, but, and they were smart about it, but most, they, they were very persistent. So yes, over this period of over 10 years, when I couldn't figure out how to tell a story and I was writing and rewriting and frustrated and working with different editors, um, I just decided, no, it's too important. I don't, I don't know why it was just one of those things that I absolutely felt like I had to get done. That's so, so cool. Awesome. Um, you know, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? What would you say if given a chance to say thank you? <laughs> you know, the first one that pops into my mind is my high school biology teacher, whom everybody loved, and her name was Miss Dutro. And um, she was so kind and just sparked her interest in biology. Uh, 
she had a traditional thing where you had to go out and collect as many leaves from trees as you could in the fall and you make a notebook or whatever. And, you know, I just remember that. Why do I remember stuff like that? I don't know, because I'm not a science person at all. But um, she was just a, a, a fun teacher and she would make you laugh. And I just appreciated her. That's so cool. Uh, Mary, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for talking with me. Your book, The Sound of Her Voice, My Blind Parent's Story, is an inspiring story. Anyone who thinks they can't do something needs to read your parent's book, <laughs> I mean, it, your, your parent's story. It's, it's so awesome. Wishing you success in everything you do. Thank you so much. Been a pleasure. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.